Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Blinkist. It's an app. Do you know about this? It'll help you hack your life. Do you want to hack your life? It'll help you learn. It'll help you improve your situation. It's called Blinkist. It's good, especially if you're in a hurry. If your time is running away from you, perhaps Blinkist can help. It works on your phone, your tablet, your web browser, you name it. And what it does is this. It takes the best key takeaways from thousands of nonfiction books, and it condenses them into just 15 minutes that you can either read or listen to. That's what it does. It gives you the need-to-know information. This is for people who want to get the gist. And with the audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to digest... The essence of a book on your lunch break. Get it? Or you can do it while you exercise. This is for achievement-oriented, ambitious people. I'm picturing you using Blinkist while you ride at top speed on your Peloton. 12 million people are using Blinkist right now. Everything from self-help to business to health books to history books, it's all there. I like it because it helps me when I'm doing research. It also helps me figure out if I'm interested in a book or not. If I like it on Blinkist, I'll usually buy the book and read the whole thing. Recently, I listened to this book by Jared Diamond called Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis, and I did it while in the fetal position. Another one I enjoyed is called The Science of Storytelling by Will Storr. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time... Blinkist has a special offer for other people listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash other people and try it for free for seven days. That's Blinkist.com slash other PPL. Try it for free for seven days and then save 25% on your subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, dot com slash other PPL. Start your free seven-day trial. Get 25% off but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash other PPL, okay? Okay. I don't think anybody has to know uh, how exactly to make Yes, hello everybody. How you doing? What's up? This is the Other People Podcast. This is the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I am your host, and I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for being here. Catherine Coldiron is my guest. She has a novella out on uh, Kern Punked Press. Kern Punked Press. 
And uh, the novella is called Ceremonials. It has been earning rave reviews. Catherine Coldiron and I coming up in conversation momentarily. How about that last name, Coldiron? That's strong, right? That's that's uh, there's something there, Coldiron. So I continue to get a lot of uh, feedback from people on my decision to quit Twitter. If you're new to this, I announced last week that I've quit Twitter. I didn't want to make too big of a deal of it, but I did need to at least mention it because I didn't want people to be wondering. And I was getting emails, people checking in. Are you okay? I miss you. <laughs> uh, it's nice to be missed. I, I, you know, it's, I, I, I guess I didn't really consider that part of it, but it is a social thing. And I was there and I was there a lot. And then suddenly I wasn't there. So I guess it makes some sense, even though I was only there virtually and I'm only now not there virtually. But I'm still here on the podcast, which is what I said last week. So if you miss me, just listen to the show. Here I am. I'm in your head, right? (coughs) A listener named Janet writes, Dear Brad, I just don't want to be on Twitter anymore. That's a great title for a book. Here's my theory. Social media came along. People got lost in it. Trump happened. People adapt their behaviors in order to find peace and reason in daily life because that's what people always do after big social disruptions. Social media adapts to new behaviors and everybody lives. This is the end of the Trump presidency. You've just lived in L.A. long enough to want to leave in the eighth inning to avoid traffic. Signed, Janet. Yeah, I continue to believe that uh, like one of the main storylines of the era that we're living through is the psychological experience of the Trump presidency via Twitter. For those of us who have been uh, you know, masochistic enough to put ourselves through this. I don't dispute that maybe I'm leaving in the eighth inning. I hope that's correct. I hope that this presidency ends. I'm, I mean, I know at some point everything ends, but it just feels like interminable. And I don't know exactly what the end game is going to look like. I anticipate it looking ugly. Then again, sometimes these things die with a whimper. I don't know. I do think people will continue to be on Twitter. Maybe after Trump is gone, right? You know, one would hope after he's gone, there would be, uh, you know, another uh, phase of adaptation as people change, but I don't know. I just got tired of it. Not only that, not only the political stuff, but just the, the toxicity of it and the anger, the human anger (laughs) on Twitter on a daily basis, just the ennui and the self-righteousness and the and just the rage, some of it, and some of the anger is like righteous anger, but even that is anger and it gets exhausting to absorb, you know, I don't know. I just want to try to concentrate on something else. I just want to try to concentrate period. A listener named Julia writes, hi, Brad. First, good job on the Twitter. I decided to take a break a couple of months ago and it was like, there was a party I felt obligated to go to, but then suddenly I decided not to go. And I got to stay at home and be happy about it because I knew the party would suck anyway. But then I came back to Twitter, which was my intention, but I have mixed feelings about it. I wish we could all agree that Twitter should only be a place for jokes. I do like the jokes. Anyway, hope you're well. I loved your conversation with Nicolette Polek. She's a gem. Signed, Julia. Yeah, I mean, I I like the jokes too on Twitter. 
but there's no way it's only going to be jokes. I guess you could try to really curate who you follow and only follow jokesters. Maybe that's the way to do it, but I don't know. It's like all the work you got to do just to try to avoid the bad stuff. And even then, you'll probably run into it anyway somehow or you'll get sucked in, you know? That's the problem with Twitter. You get sucked in. Or at least I did. I got sucked in, man. A listener named Jocelyn writes, Hello, Brad. This was the most stale, boring, narcissistic conversation I've ever listened to in my life. Signed, Jocelyn. She was referring to last week's episode. Uh, I'm sorry it didn't work out for you, Jocelyn. But thank you for listening. I appreciate it. So uh, here's the news, though. There is news, and I feel obligated to uh, share it, is that the Other People podcast is now back on Twitter. I found a solution. Because I do feel a sense of obligation to the people who guest on this program to try to promote it. And I'm not on Instagram. People have tried to get me on. Instagram makes me anxious. I don't want to see people's photos. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't want to see your vacation photos. I don't want to see your lunch. I don't want to see shit. Okay? I'm sorry. But it, Twitter's the only one that I was on. And I was like, well, now in the absence of this, I have no like megaphone. I have no way of trying to get the word out. So uh, I found a solution. Uh, I have hired as my new uh, social media director for the Other People podcast, Joseph Grantham, a past guest on this program, incidentally, and a fine uh, author and gentleman and scholar in his own right. So Joseph is uh, has been kind enough to accept this role, and he will be tweeting from the Other People Twitter feed on my behalf. Uh, the Twitter feed is at OtherPPL. And if I ever have anything to say, I'll just funnel it through Joseph, and he will sign the tweet with my initials, BL. So I think that's how it's going to go. Joey will run it. He'll tweet when there's a new episode. He can interact with you. He's a, he's a, you know, he's a fun guy to, to chat with on Twitter. And uh, I encourage you all to communicate with him. Okay? Does that sound okay? Can we live with that as like some sort of compromise? Fuck you! Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Catherine Coldiron is my guest. Her novella, Ceremonials, is out there from Kern Punk Press. It was nice to meet her. I enjoyed my time with Catherine Coldiron. Are you ready to hear our conversation? Okay, this is Catherine Coldiron, 
and her novella, One More Time, is called Ceremonials. I'm a Navy brat, so um, I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, but then... We Charleston? Lived, yeah, but I was only lived there for six months. Um, we moved ten times before I was 12, so even though I'm from up and down the East Coast... I don't really have a hometown per se. I kind of feel like that, but I didn't move nearly as much. <laughs> How many times did you move? I moved one, two, three. I moved three times as a kid. Was it like different houses in the same town or different towns? Different towns. Yeah. 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 It was like, for me, it was, we changed, I changed schools a lot. Um, and I got used to it and I don't think that, I would go back and do it any differently. Um, but I'm a little bit envious of people who kind of went to elementary school and middle school and high school all in the same place and And know all those people, they know all the same people that they've known since they were kids. Uh I have the same thing. Yeah. So your dad was in the Navy. Yeah. Okay. What did he do in the Navy? He, um, (sighs) is it, is it classified? I don't think so. Um, (laughs) I know that he was uh, he was uh, an enlisted guy when he was in Vietnam, and then he got out, went to college, and came back as an officer. Um, he was on aircraft carriers and cruisers. He was a surface operations guy in the first Gulf War, um, and that was when I was a really young kid, and he was away for like two years. Oh. Um, and Wait, that had to have been hard. Yeah, it sucked. How old were you? <laughs> oh, Nine ten. Oh, that's how old my daughter is now. She would freak out. Yeah. No, I mean, I was used to it because he did six-month deployments throughout my youth. But when the Gulf War happened, he was gone for just a long time. And he was in? He was in? Iraq or? Um, he was in the Persian Gulf. Just in the Gulf on those boats? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then after that, he taught at the Naval Academy for a little while. And then... After he made captain, he did as much as possible to avoid a desk job. Um, So he did a bunch of weird things. He was the attache to the ambassador to Denmark. He um, What does an attache do? um, He advised the ambassador about issues in the Navy. So like what the what people in Copenhagen should know about the US Navy issues at the time. That sounds like a great job. It was. For him it was a great job. I mean, you know, the attaches to the guys in like Saudi Arabia, not so good. In Denmark, super awesome. Yeah, right. How much <laughs> and, and let's be real, how much do the people of Copenhagen really need to know on a daily basis about the Navy of the United States? Exactly. <laughs> just got to sit there in, in a cafe and yeah. just wait for somebody to text you. He did have to learn Danish, um, but he did successfully. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Did you get to live there? No, I visited him there once, um, but that was after I was already an adult. So. Is he still doing this? No, he retired probably 10, 12 years ago, I think. Um, we actually haven't spoken in a while. We're estranged. Um, but he did retire after, I don't know, 40 years. So he, he was in for a long time. Oh, wow. And then what about your mom? Uh, my mom uh, was a stay at home mom for a little while. And then she started going to graduate school and didn't stop until she had a PhD. And now she is a professor of poetics and translation. Um, so that's where it comes from. Is that what it is? Is that the line? I think that my, I think that my intelligence resembles my dad's more because he's more of a polymath. 
um, and much more of a dilettante, which is what I am totally. I, you know, pick up things and drop them very quickly. Right. Um, but my mom's absolute diamond-like focus on things is what I'm always sort of striving toward as a writer. You want to know something no one has ever accused me of having is diamond-like focus. <laughs> Um, and you know, just for people listening are probably sitting at home going, well, if they're estranged, what happened? I'm presuming you don't want to get into that, but I have to ask as the host. Like- yeah. Um, I would rather not get into it. I think that he started to see me as if I was my mother who he absolutely hates. Oh, okay. Um, and kind of started to elide us together and thought that I knew everything that she knew. And thus I was judging him unfairly and all kinds of, it's, it was weird and sad. So were they divorced? Oh yeah. They were divorced in 99. So they've been divorced a long time. It's advisable if one person in a couple hates the other, that they not stay together. (laughs) Yeah. Typically speaking. Yeah. (laughs) Um, okay. So like in some ways I feel like you would be the perfect person to guest on a podcast because you're so, uh, accustomed due to your itinerant youth to like having to ingratiate yourself to people and introduce yourself to people. That's like, I mean, unless that's just a cliche and you disagree with it, but I don't disagree. That's how kids who, uh, like army brats and kids who have to move a lot because of a parent's job, they typically are somewhat adept at, uh, integrating themselves or assimilating socially because of necessity. Oh yeah. When I was a kid, um, whenever we would go to the pool on the Navy base, I would make it my goal to have a friend by the end of the day. Um, and later in my life, I became more of an introvert. Um, but I've still got those skills of kind of meeting people and, you know, making them as friendly as possible. Okay. I have a couple of questions to ask. The first, I'm, I'm going to go, I think, backwards here. First of all, it occurs to me that maybe the general arc for almost all people is toward introversion as we age. Oh. Does anybody get more extroverted as they age? Like, <sighs> like by the time they get to be like 80, they're just like out? Like, don't people close down? See, I never thought of that. I guess I figured that as you got more comfortable with yourself, you would be more interested in meeting different people as opposed to staying in and being you know, terrified and curled up on your couch. But aren't the legit, I feel like it's maybe so. I feel like the logistics of getting to know new people becomes more difficult as you get into the adult world because you don't have these like hives of uh, socializing right. that are provided to you when you're in say college or s- school or something. Yeah. Automatic but- opportunities like school. Um, I don't know. I do know that I've witnessed women who come out of long marriages suddenly becoming extroverts um so maybe free like let me go talk to some people so maybe that's an exception but um but that's an interesting observation i never thought of it that way what about men coming out of long marriages oh they just marry someone else usually they just (laughs) they just get on tinder just try hard the um the the cliche i've heard is that women grieve and men replace um when it comes to marriages ending and i have not seen that contradicted in my experience that's interesting that you say that. I'm thinking of someone right now, and that's exactly how it seems to be going. But sometimes women replace. Come on, we got to give. I mean, women can replace too. <laughs> they can. <laughs> men can grieve. Yes, well, of hope. course, men can grieve. Of course, yeah. pattern wise, though. Pattern wise, yeah. Generally speaking, I think. Um, and so the the second question that I have for you, thinking of you as a young child, like new to the whatever Navy base and whatever town you're in, you know, you had this goal of making a friend by the end of the day. Do you have a strategy? How do you make a friend by the end of the day? I don't know what I did when I was a child. 
um, probably just walked up to people in the pool and said, Hey, can I play with you? That's how kids go. Yeah. That's kind of cool. So easy. Um, as an adult, uh, I have learned to ask questions because people will talk about themselves forever. And I'm certainly guilty of that. If someone asks me questions, I'll just, I'll keep talking. Um, but if the conversation stalls, then I'll start asking, you know, what about you? Where are you from? What do you do? Blah, blah, blah. And people think you're a wonderful conversationalist if you just ask questions nonstop. Yeah. That's my whole shtick. Obviously it's your whole shtick. But I think what I'm going to do from now on when I go out and I want to make new friends is I'm just going to walk up to groups of adults and say, can I play with you? (laughs) Just to see what they say. I think it actually might work. I mean, maybe. Once they get past like the, do we need to get a restraining order phase? They they realize that I'm safe. Yes. They might actually invite me in. Well, you have a nice face. So, well, (laughs) maybe that helps. It's debatable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So, 12 towns? Is that what you said? Um, Okay. So, started in Charleston and then we moved to Rhode Island and then Key West, um, where we had a banana tree in the yard, but I was way too young to appreciate it. Um, And then to Rockville, Maryland, and then back to Rhode Island briefly, and then to Norfolk, Virginia. And then my mother and I moved to Charlottesville, Virginia, which was where he, she got her PhD, and then Annapolis, Maryland, and then they split up, and I went to college, and they did their thing. And they did their thing. Where'd you go to school? Um, I went to Mount Holyoke for undergrad. Okay. Um, where is that? It's in western Massachusetts All right. in a place called the Pioneer Valley, um, where there's a five-college consortium that includes Mount Holyoke, Amherst College, UMass Amherst, uh, Hampshire and Smith. Um, so Mount Holyoke is kind of the, (laughs) kind of the, um, if you think of them like Scooby-Doo characters, Mount Holyoke is Daphne. Um, and like Smith is Velma. Is that a common way of thinking of these? Oh yeah. Um, people use the Scooby-Doo analogy. The urban legend is that the guys who created Scooby-Doo went to UMass Amherst. It turns out that that's not true. Um, but the five colleges do map directly onto these. So wait, who's Fred? Um, Amherst. And then Velma Smith. <laughs> Smith. Yep. Who's Scooby? Um, oh, and then Shaggy, UMass, Shaggy's Hampshire. Shaggy's Hampshire, obviously. Yeah. And UMass Amherst is Scooby. I've, I've had somebody on, or maybe more than one person on, who either went to Hampshire or we were talking about Hampshire. And like, I went to Boulder, and I thought that was a pretty hippied out school. But uh, Hampshire. Hampshire. No, I, I mean they turn out a lot of artists, which is great. But yeah, I think their most famous alumnus is. Um, Eric Carl, who wrote The Very Hungry Caterpillar. And the joke about that is, like, he was stoned, and that's why he was so hungry. Well, um, but what about, uh, God, I'm going to blank on her name. She won the Oscar for, like, 12 Years a Slave or something. Oh. That actress. I, I'm terrible with names. But anyway, um, I think she went to Hampshire. Oh, really? If my memory is serving me. Gosh, I'm astonished that anyone who went to Hampshire is well-organized enough to win an Oscar. Right? Um, well, that's but it, not to disparage it. Hampshire, but. Yeah. A lot of weed. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of weed. A lot of walking in the woods on mushrooms and uh-huh. trying to find God. Yeah. It's not a bad education. No. And I mean, I love that they don't have grades. I think that's a great way to run a college. It's it's kind of, it sounds like it's eight times more work um, as a professor to have no grades because then you have to write essays for all of your students. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, you actually but, like, have to evaluate them and like get to know them as people and think mm-hmm. about them. And and the shortcuts for that of grades seem just much easier on the teacher. Um, but by I the think way, it's better. And, yeah. And uh, like, I think uh, UC Santa Cruz doesn't have grades. There are some colleges that, um, work that way, but I think you tell that to most people and they're like, no grades. 
this is crazy, you know, like, and there's so many things like that in life. Like, why do we need grades? What the fuck are these letters that we give out and the SAT? We've come up with these metrics by which we measure somebody. And Well, but are you ever in a position where you want to know where you stand in a group of people? I try not to be in groups of people okay. as, as often as possible, but I think, I think maybe, right? Maybe we all do at some point. At some point. But I don't typically like... Because there's, there's a way in which I think that ranking ourselves in terms of groups of people is useless and, and fascist and terrible. But then there's another way in which I want to be like, well, but how do I figure out if I'm as smart as I think I am? And I don't think grades are a particularly good measure, but I'm, I think there are good measures out there and that they're useful. Like what? Oh, golly. Um, patterns more than individual things. Like what's on my mind right now is um, my uh, almost all of the essays in the collection that I've just finished have been rejected. Not the book that we're not, not the book we're supposed to be talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this, I just, I just finished this collection of essays um, and of the nine of them that I've finished, two of them have been published and the other seven have been rejected so many times that it approaches like hundreds of rejections. And I can't figure out why no one wants them because I think they're marvelous. And everyone that I've talked to in my critique groups have said, these are marvelous. You have multiple critique groups? Uh, just friends. Um, Do you and- grade each other? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You failed, by the and way. And my mentors say, these are marvelous. No one wants them. And that says to me either that they're actually terrible or that there's something about them that's so unusual, so not in the scale that people can't recognize them. Um, So it feels like I would like to have some kind of objective measure about where these essays are in terms of how easy they are to understand and and or how terrible. You know what I mean? Like, I'd like to have some grade on them. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. Give me that. a grade. Like, tell me if it's good. Is this good? Do you yes. like this? How do I? And I want it to make sense to me. Mm-hmm. But you know what? You're never going to get it. No. Because it's art. It's a piece of creative work, and it's always subjective. And you just there, no one's going to be able to give you a solid like answer that is cross functional. Oh uh, yeah, and I mean, and outside. Oh, what's the word? Come on, brain. Um, Affirmation, I guess, outside affirmation is worthless um, as an artist, and I recognize that. But the part of me that's 13 still wants it. Yeah, I think that's human. Yeah. Like, there are certain aspects to my humanness. I think there are certain aspects to anyone's humanness that you can't fully get rid of, even if you might want to like that feeling of wanting to know where you stand in a group of people. Like that's just kind of our animal nature. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you something that's a little bit creepy. Maybe awesome. it just happened. <laughs> it just happened to me um, this morning. In fact, it was very windy in Los Angeles today and it was like extremely windy at dawn, but I was already up by the time I realized that it was windy. Otherwise I probably wouldn't have gone hiking or I would have had a good excuse to like talk myself out of it. But I was just like, I'm up, let's do this put on like I bundled up and I'm walking and it's like dawn light and I'm always like a little sensitive, uh, especially when there are, um, female hikers who are solo or just two, like they, like they always look a little 
little bit like at a guy, they're like, who's this guy? They're always checking you out to make sure you're okay. I have my dog with me, which sort of, I think softens my situation. Yeah. It's a nice bumper. Yeah. I always got a dog. He's not like completely psycho, but I was like walking. And then I'm also thinking of like coyotes. There's something like, you know, as wild as Los Angeles can be, I think dawn in the hills is when you might have like a taste of it. I think that's why I like it. And I was walking and there was this like woman up the trail. This is going to make me sound like a pervert, but she looked looked attractive. And I was just like, and I'm sorry, but I noticed it, you know, you know, and this is from a distance. I was like, oh, there's like a fit. Like she seems like a sporty, attractive woman. And then I was like, I don't know. Suddenly I was like, I'm like a coyote. I was like that part of me. Like, I was like, ew, like that. I think we all have that. I don't know if women have that, but I think guys have that. And it's like not something, it's just how we're built as people. Not that I did anything. I didn't start like crawling around in the bushes or anything, but I just noticed like, I was like, why did I even like lock in like that? Like, why can't I just pay attention to my footsteps and like, look at the yeah. sky? I've had isolated moments of that coyote <laughs> sensation. I right. mean, part of, part of it is that I'm bi and that means that sometimes I look at women and I have that sensation. Um, I think that's human. And right. what makes you decent instead of a creep is that you didn't do anything. Right. But I think like we have to, like, I think it's good to acknowledge that we are animals. Absolutely. I mean, right. Not only because, uh, it's true, but because there's some humility, I think in that, um, like I always, I like to think of myself as like not better than like the birds and the, the, uh, coyotes or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, we're all creatures on the earth. I think, I think sometimes humans, you know, we can sort of uh, trick ourselves and try to distance ourselves from, from these things. But it is like a weird uh, relationship to try to strike between recognizing like your sort of animal nature and also recognizing like how you might have to suppress it or, I don't know, just pay attention to it. So my day job right now is that I work with horses. Um, I'm a groom at a stable. And, um, all day long I'm handling horses I'm you know, taking them out of their stalls and putting them back and grooming them and caring for them. And they startle very easily, um, when humans are around because humans smell like predators, um, because we're meat eaters and I'm not, well, okay. This is why, this is why horses love me. (laughs) But if you, they have learned over many, many, many millennia that humans are going to prey on them because they're prey animals and to get them to trust you is a practice. It's, it's not even like a goal because there's no end point of it. They can always untrust you eventually. Um, and sometimes the way to motivate them is to remind them that you're a predator, um, which I find awful to do because I love them so much, but the only way that sometimes they'll trot is if you get really big and you wave your arms and you act like a predator and then they respect you and are interested in spending time with you, which is baffling. Um, but being with them, horses don't think that humans are horses. They know that we're not unlike dogs, which I think sometimes think that humans are dogs. Um, but being with them reminds me that I'm an animal too, that I'm a mammal, that, you know, all of the, all of the cosmetic stuff that I do to try and make myself not sweat and not have hair is meaningless and pointless because I am a mammal and I always will be. Um, right. So people who, you know, laser off their hair and 
take out their sweat glands. I just don't understand. Like people take their sweat glands out. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's fucking weird. I agree. You know what else I think is weird? And like, I'm all, I'm not, I'm, I'm sort of grossed out by hair. So I'm, I'm down with no hair. I can live, <laughs> get rid of your hair. Your hair is like, I don't even want hair on my head. I think hair is gross, <laughs> but, uh, calf implants. Oh yeah. When you're putting implants in your calves, that seems like you've just, you've lost it. Examine your life, bro. Right. <laughs> like what? I want to say David Hasselhoff has calf oh, implants. Oh really? But then like, I guess if you're on Baywatch, you're paid to have good calves. Well, right. I mean, if, if your whole job relies on how attractive your body is, then I can fully understand why right. you feel like it has to be in the peak beauty that it can be. Um, and by the way, that's like, everyone's like, uh, oohing and eyeing about, uh, Brad Pitt in uh, once upon a time in Hollywood. Cause he takes his shirt off. He's like almost 60 years old and he looks better than like most 25 year olds. Yeah. And, but it's uh, his job. That's his job. That's his job. It's also his genes. Well, sure. But, but genes lead to job and vice versa. But I mean, this is a guy who smoked. This is a guy, I mean, he hasn't lived like a squeaky clean life, but we never really have heard from Brad Pitt about what his like beauty regimen is this guy has got to be, I don't care how good your genes are. He's got to have a team like trainers. I'm sure they all do. Right. Yeah. I mean, I this think can't just be like, Oh, he's just like, Oh, I do some push ups in the morning and this is just how it yeah, turned out. No. I, he's I got, mean, he's getting facials and shit. He's I, doing all kinds of things. I think living in LA has especially made me think about this because I'm never sure whether celebrities are actually just like us, whether they live sort of normal lives and go out for coffee and whatnot, or whether they have access to things that we have no idea what they are. Um, I can't figure out what the truth of that is, you know, whether their teams of trainers and their exercise regimens are so very different from ours or whether they just work harder at it. I think it's a little bit of both. I think there are some, I think there are plenty of celebrities who have a foot in reality um, and I think part of it has to do with understanding how dangerous the whole thing is. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, like just, it's just comes down to like self-awareness and smarts and like having some sense of grounding and how you were raised and the, who your friends are, you know, it's like, I guess I think some people can do it. Um, you know, I, I see celebrities every once in a while. It's funny that you don't often see them like socializing. Mm -hmm. They tend to do that in private because they don't want to be bothered. But I did see, uh, I saw like, I I saw like Heather Graham and Molly Shannon having a juice together the other day. Well, good for them. They seem just like buddies. Gal pals. Gal pals. That's nice. Having a organic juice. We don't Um, get a a lot of celebrities in Chatsworth. So (laughs) (laughs) we're probably the better for it. Hang out with the horses. Yeah. It's a better, it's a better go. My son, um, who, uh, you know, is disabled. I don't know if you know that, but He's got CP. He does hippotherapy. Oh, yeah. So we have him on a horse like once a week. Yeah. So. I, I volunteer at a place that does that, actually. Really? Where is it? Uh, in Chatsworth. Oh, it is. They have a place in Chatsworth and they have one in Thousand Oaks. Um, okay. Because uh, we go way out to like some stable in like Pasadena, like South, no, what's the Pasadena, but it's... Um, Not Glendale. No, it's um, Altadena. Oh, okay. Yeah. Altadena is where it is. I think that might be more convenient for you than going to Chatsworth. It's not that convenient. Well, I know, but a, you'd have to take the 101 and yeah, it would, no. I think it would suck more to come to Chatsworth, but I, I mean, I love it there and the kids I work with are so sweet and wonderful and, and the horses love them. I mean, yeah, they, well, you have to train them really carefully. Yeah. Um, the horses, I mean, not the people, um, because otherwise, you know, they would be startled and they would hurt the kids. Um, 
that's why it's so hard to find therapy horses because they have to have a real special disposition and then they have to be trained like down to the ground to not react. They have three people on the horse while he's on it. They have somebody like holding the reins basically from behind mm -hmm. somebody on the side ready to like pull him off if mm -hmm. anything were to go sideways. And then there's like another person typically. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, it's like this, just this big kind of like wide bodied horse named Fiona, like a oh. white horse. He loves her. That's wonderful. Yeah. I'm and really glad. So I hope it's working. I mean, they say that these things, you know, horse therapy can work miracles for. Oh, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know anything about it, but I do see how happy the kids are on the horses and right. how their parents just absolutely love it. They love seeing the kids on the horses. Um, and it's, I, I think it's wonderful all around. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I, I'm, I'm sort of envious that you get to like just hang with horses. I mean, my two years younger self is envious of me now. Um, I, it evolved kind of over a series of fuck ups. Um, so I'm I'm grateful that it what turned out mean? this way. What do you mean? You like stumbled into this? I kind of. Um, I did not last year, but the year before. I did a retreat. Um, one weekend where I went to, um, to Hachapi and spent a weekend with wild horses. Where's the Hachapi? Um, north of Bakersfield question mark. I think. Okay. Well, what is it? A town? Oh no, it's like an area. Oh, okay. Um, it's, it is a town, but it's also sort of an, an, a canyony deserty kind of area that way. <laughs> um, she's pointing East. I think <laughs> I am pointing East. Um, and the idea was that we were to spend the weekend, quote unquote, gentling the wild horses. But of course, you know, you can't gentle a horse in a weekend. Um, but when and they, gentling a wild horse means like taming it, taming it, right? Like horse whispering. Yes. Yeah. But in practice, what that meant was that we went in the round pen with the horses and just spent time with them and tried to get them to approach us and approach them and kind of tried to get them to get a halter on them and so forth. But these are wild animals, so it was more difficult than it sounds. Um, and I had ridden when I was a young girl, like middle school age, and I had not had horses in my life until that weekend. Was this in Maryland that you did this? No, it was Virginia. Oh, Virginia, um, same thing, but that's like horse country. Same thing. Well, but I mean like same kind of <laughs> terrain and like, let's like, it's horse friendly. I mean, yeah. Um, and so that weekend, uh, taught me that I, I needed to get horses back in my life because my anxiety went down and my sort of general demeanor was better and I felt more inspired and relaxed. And I thought, okay, this is something that I have to do. So I started volunteering at Ride On just kind of to have horses there, um, in my life every like twice a week. Um, and after I did that for several months, I decided to start applying for groom jobs. Barn work is hard work. That's like a fact of life. There's no way that you're going to work at a stable and not be exhausted at the end of the day. Like so, mucking stalls and mucking stuff? stalls and, and grooming is very hard work and like, you know, getting stepped on and getting kicked. It's just like, it tears up your body to be around horses. So I knew that it, I'm almost 40. So I knew it was going to be a big adjustment. Um, and also it's very poorly paid. Um, but I didn't care about that at the time. So it was like, <laughs> I did this volunteering thing and I kind of talked my way into this job as a groom and completely broke my body down over the last six months and have built it back up again. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of stumbled into it, kind of, kind of gold my way into it, made it, it a goal and, it, and made it happen. And it like genuinely relaxed you, like brought your anxiety level down. Yes. Just to be around the animals. Just to be around them. You know, there are... I think, I mean, I think animals have a great effect on us. I've always had a dog. I love animals in general. 
Um, and I think that if you don't have relationship, like a relationship with the animals in your life, you're missing a dimension. I tend to agree. Um, I can't have a dog because, um, this was, this is like the one point of disagreement between me and my husband. He doesn't want a dog. And that means that we can't have a dog because it's like having a kid, right? You can't just sort of one spouse has to be, both spouses have to be on board right. for that. Um, so what's his, what's his argument? He doesn't want to, he doesn't like them. No, he, he doesn't dislike dogs. Just want to make that clear. People have hated him in the past for this, but this <laughs> is like his one flaw guys, like one. Um, but he had an experience where, um, his parents decided to get a dog when he was just about to go to college and they promised that they would be the ones to take care of it. And he said, no, no, it's all going to fall on me. And I don't want to take care of a dog. And they were like, no, no, no. They were playing the kids in the situation. We'll feed it. We'll walk it. We'll do everything. No. When they got the dog, he ended up feeding it and walking it and taking care of it. And he never bonded with it. So he felt like the responsibility for this sentient creature was on him and he didn't ask for it and didn't want it. And that's how he feels about dogs. Now he feels like he doesn't want to be responsible for a sentient creature. Um, because he just doesn't. And he's also worried about kind of, if we go out of town, what are we going to do? And I'm like, there are solutions for that. Like, don't worry about it. And yeah. he's, no, he, he won't do it. Um, I have a, a prediction. He's going to eventually soften on this. Well, I mean, it's been like 10 years <laughs> that give, I've been... The thing about... And I get it, because it, it adds a layer of responsibility, and there are headaches and yeah. logistics. You, they give more than they take. I think so. They give so much more than they take, but you just got to make the leap, and then you have to get through like the first, you know, two, three, four, five months where you're adjusting or whatever and second-guessing yourself, and then eventually you go, oh, like this is the greatest. I'll tell him you said that. Yeah. I'm going to try to bring him around, because there's so many dogs that need homes. Well, so funny story, though. When I went to that wild horse weekend, the horse that I was working with, I bonded with. And, um, you bring a horse home? I, w I really wanted to. <laughs> she was so wonderful. And I called my husband midway through, and I was like, you know, I really love this horse. I think I really want to get this horse. We can't afford it by any stretch of the imagination. What does a horse cost? Oh. Because um, you've got to stable it and everything. That's, the, that's really the thing. You can adopt a horse fairly cheaply, like a couple hundred dollars to adopt a wild horse. But you have to train them. And adopt a wild horse? Yeah, you can. Because it's, there's wild horses all over the place that need homes. Yes. In the West. Yep. It kind of makes me feel good in a way. There's still wild horses out there. Well, it's funny. Um, I, I, have, I have a whole essay about this. Um, the, in, but, this in this aforementioned collection? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's about the Misfits, the movie from 1961, and um, the West and myths of the West and myths of wild horses because uh, wild horses are not actually native to America. Even though they're like the big symbol of the American West and the Mustang and all that, they're actually the descendants of conquistador horses that came over from Spain. So the horses in America are actually feral horses because they escaped from captivity as opposed to being born and bred wild. Um, and I think that's fascinating. No, they're Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. They're not actually American at all. Any more than white people are American. Right. Um, but the point of all this is to say he was more okay with us having a horse than with us having a dog. Interesting. Because He's the horse against was going to be elsewhere. The horse was going to be taken care of by other people, right. and I was going to take care of it some of the time. You know what he sounds like? He sounds like a cat person. I'm allergic to cats. Interesting. Okay, so that that's it. You're boxed in. I am. It's a bummer. <laughs> well, at least you got your horses. Exactly. I, I found a good compromise, I think. That's cool. Are you a good rider? No. 
I am an okay rider. I had a terrifying experience in Cuba. You a rode a horse in Cuba? I'm telling you, I was in, it was insane. I was with oh. my, I was with friends of mine, which is which was often the case in my youth, which was, I think was which was both a blessing and a curse. Who were a lot crazier than I am. Oh yeah, like just constitutionally, like I'm always I'm fairly cautious. Like I was the guy in college who was like, you know, guys, we should like we're parked on the side of the road here. We're all sleeping on top of this camper. Like we should probably bury the drugs, like just in case. That was me, and everyone's <laughs> like, dude, you're so paranoid. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not paranoid. I just don't want to go to jail. You just bury him right over here. And oh then that, you know, and so, um, I was in Cuba in uh, Vinales national park, which is this gorgeous national park. Um, I think to the West of Havana and it's, uh, it's like a, basically like a, a huge expanse of flat red earth, very fertile soil, I think. And then like these giant limestone, um, rock formations that essentially look like mountains. They're called magotes and they only exist in Vinales national park. If I, if I have this correct. And then I think in like Vietnam or Thailand or somewhere in Asia. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of this rare thing, but they're basically these giant like limestone rock formations, like just shooting up out of this like flat red earth and they're covered. The limestone rock formations are covered in greenery. So they look really lush and gorgeous. And so we stayed at this like one hotel. There's like one, I mean, back in the day, this was many years ago. There's like one hotel. Back before the revolution. <laughs> yeah, that's how old I am. This is before <laughs> Castro. Um, but there was like this one hotel overlooking the valley. And then there's just like this little like one horse town, like, you know, down the road where there's like a one restaurant or something like that. But we were staying at this hotel and they're like, you know, do you want to go horseback riding? We're like, yeah, and you can go horseback riding through the park. It sounds nice, but we we, uh, we wake up in the morning. They're like, you got to meet like Jose or whatever out in front of the hotel. We show up out in front of the hotel, and it's like this dude who is uh, like he's looking rough. He's, yeah, he's a tough hombre, you know. But he's like just in his jeans. He's wiry. He's like missing some teeth. He's got his hat on, and he's got these like mangy horses that look like underfed. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yes. it, it wasn't like the, the horseback riding adventure of like, you know, the Grand Canyon or whatever you would right. imagine. So we get on these horses. There's absolutely no instruction. Like maybe he's like talking at us in like rapid Spanish. I can pick up a little bit. You know, my, actually one of my friends was pretty fluent, but, um, you know, just kind of get on the horse. I have very little experience on a horse and we, we take off into the park and Jose, the guy comes up behind my horse and whips it on oh, the ass no. and starts laughing. I'm at a full gallop. I'm standing up in my stirrups, like hanging on for dear life. I could have died. You know? Of course like, you could have died. <laughs> my friends are all laughing. Cause like, they were like, I don't know why they were like, not as worried as I was. I was like, guys, you know, and I'm standing up on this horse. It was a white horse with like spots. And I just remember like, it was just cruising. Yeah. Uh, thank goodness that the land was relatively flat. I think that kept me from falling off. Um, if it would have been like varied terrain, I think it would have been harder to hold on, but scared the shit out of me. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. But I'll st- I'd still go ride again. Huh? Yeah. Just not like that. <laughs> um, my husband is actually a little bit afraid of horses. Um, partially for the same reason as the dog thing. He, he doesn't like the idea of controlling a sentient creature. You know, because the creature has... What, its, what is it with this sentient creature Well, thing? it's for him, it's like this sentient creature has the, has a mind of its own. Right. And controlling it or owning it is like kind of dodgy. 
But they're um, going to get euthanized in the shelter. Well, yeah. <laughs> this is not how Matt thinks of it. Um, and when we got married, we did our honeymoon in Bermuda. And he did, ugh, it was magnificent. He surprised me with a horseback ride at sunrise on the beach Whoa, in Bermuda, romantic. which is just the most beautiful thing. So we had this, we had this very interesting German woman who was leading this. And it was just the three of us, just the guide and him and me. And Matt was sort of uncomfortable through most of the ride, but then she nudged the horses into a canter at one point along the beach. And I'm having the time of my life because I've cantered before and I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. Oh my God. Um, but then when it's over, I look back at him and I have never seen him so terrified in my life. He, he, he was white and his <laughs> eyes were still like, it was, oh, so I felt so bad. Did you go swim? Did like, do you take the horses into the water? And no, it? no, it was, no. it was just a, just a ride ride, but it was like, I felt so bad because I had so much fun, but he didn't know what to expect at all. So he was petrified. Yeah. I went horseback riding with my daughter last summer up in, uh, like it was basically up near Ronald Reagan's old, uh, Santa Barbara estate. Oh, okay. I think that was what we were told on the ride. But it was like a really slow, I mean, she's nine years old, so. Oh, yeah. But it was great. She loves horses. Oh, trail rides. The best. Best. I liked it. Yeah. It's a little hot, but, you know, I had my hat on. I had an eight-hour ride in Montana one time. Damn. That was amazing. Um, but the next day, I had a cramp in a groin muscle that I felt uncomfortable telling people that I had a cramp <laughs> there. Yeah, that, that's the thing. If you're not, a, I mean, your body has to get acclimated to being... Uh, especially if you're going to ride that long, like, like I remember after the Cuba ride being a little wobbly. Yeah, there are all these sore. weird muscles in your thighs. You'd... Well, you think about like cowboys or people who are actually out on a horse all day long every day, and like you know they're bow legged. Like yeah. your body, like it takes its toll. It really does. Um, but super fun, especially if you're in a beautiful setting. Yes. And if you know, and especially if you know what you're doing. Yeah. Be nice if I had any knowledge whatsoever of how to handle a horse before I took off at a full gallop. Yeah, that would be good. Um, so you had mentioned, I, I think in an interview that you did, um, you know, recently, um, in promotion of your new book, your new novella that you grew up going to private school and that you were a little bit, um, shy about saying so, or you felt wobbly about talking about it. Why? I think that it gives the wrong impression about what I took for granted, um, when I was growing up. And I think that it also gives the wrong impression about my preferences when I was young. Um, I would have been perfectly happy not to go to private school. I wasn't, you know, the kind of, I demand a Corvette for my 16th birthday kind of girl. Super sweet 16. Yeah. That's not me. Um, and I feel that saying that that's my background is it's, it, I think it just gives the wrong impression. Um, about who I was, what my priorities were and what I wanted. You would have just, but yeah, I mean, I, but your parents just wanted you to get a good, a good education. Yes, that's right. Um, and in some, I mean, because I went to a bunch of different schools in some situations, like when I was in middle school, I went to a public school because it was a really small community and, uh, mom was okay with the level of education that I could get at the public school there. Um, but Where then was this? this was in Charlottesville, Virginia. Oh, right. And then, but when I went to, when we moved to Maryland, she was dead set against me going to the public high school there. And I have thought about this a lot because I think it set me up kind of not to be comfortable in big 
pools of people because, you know, my high school graduating class was 89 people. And that meant that the idea of going to a large university was completely overwhelming. So when you get in this track of being in a private school and being in small classes and being in isolated circumstances, you want to continue it. You want to go to a small college and then you want to go to a small grad school because you're not used to being around a whole lot of people. But the world is big. And I feel that it might have been better. I don't know. Um, and See, my I, life... I went to a giant public high school. I had 700 kids in my graduating class. And look how well adjusted I am hiding in my garage doing podcasts. <laughs> I think you're very well adjusted. I'm trying. Um, I mean, you're a parent and I'm not, so there's that. And I got a dog. And you got a I'm, dog. I have so many sentient creatures under my... <laughs> under, my under your purview? My command. Yes. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I'm kind of... I'm not comfortable with the privilege that it implies that I went to private schools all throughout. I think they should be illegal. Oh. Full stop. Like, I, you know, some people will say, well, what about religious schools? Like, okay, we can make some sort of little exception. But my whole theory is that like you've got a two, it's like a class system and rich people can buy their kids, um, a better education in better facilities. Uh, a lot of the time, not all the time. Sometimes public schools are better than private schools. Like it can, it's not like it's a hard, fast rule, but generally speaking, the, the facilities are better. The teachers are better paid and there's more accountability because there's like tuition, like there's more parental involvement and expectation. It's yeah, more like it's, a business. It's a really special little sliver of accountability. You know, the accountability is about um, whether you can buy your way out of trouble as opposed to being about actual rigorous standards that are set by the government. Um, I, I tend to agree with you. I think public schools are, or private schools rather, are an overall evil. Um, but in individual cases, I'm not sure. And part of it too is, I mean, should there be merit-based private schools? I mean, I just think that like, that we, like, you know, the public school system in our country is obviously subpar in some places. It's great in many places, the majority of places it needs to be a lot better. I would say broken. Yeah. And so I just, my theory is that if you suddenly outlawed private schools and now all the rich parents had to send their kids to the same public school, the same shitty public schools as every other, you know, all the other parents, suddenly the public schools would get better like that. I'm not sure they would. I think they'd find another exception or another way to like, I think they would all homeschool if they had to send their kids to private to public schools. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. This is just my ideal, yeah. you know, my idealistic mind, but I feel like if actually confronted with that reality, um, I think the political pressure, the money pressure, the parent, um, agitating, you mm -hmm. know, it would make some changes happen because by the way, I want to say back in the mid 20th century, the American public school system was the envy of the world. Mm -hmm. We used to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. It's not impossible. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's ultra capitalism, I think that has caused all this and yeah. Yeah. So I feel you, you know, but it's also, I'm also a parent and I know what it's like when faced with those choices, you're oh, like, for sure. yeah. you know, but the contortions that you have to make financially to try to make all that happen. Like I'm right in the middle of that right now. And it drives me up the fucking wall. Yeah. I've, I've had conversations about this with my once mentor, now friend, Christopher Higgs, who has a young son and they're sending him to a Waldorf school, uh, which to me is a whole other thing, but I'm, I don't even want to get into it cause I don't want to criticize his choices. Um, but his, I mean, he's from Wyoming, you know, his whole, 
youth was drugs and public schools and fucking up. And so the idea of kind of starting off his kid right at six is foreign, but also like he desperately wants to do it at all costs. Um, so he's conflicted, I think. And uh, talking to him about that has been really enlightening. Yeah. I mean, it's like, the, like there are a few more consequential choices than the choices you make around education. Because, you know, you, your kids get to be of school age. They're gone from you for, you know, six to eight hours a day. And somebody else is in charge, you know, and you have to make sure you supervise that, hopefully, it's, properly. It's true, but, I mean, I think, I don't think that the influences in public school are worse than the influences in private school. I think they're different. Yeah. Well, they um, can be, I think they can be even worse in private school in some in some ways. It's like you're getting, like, good drugs and, you know. And it's such a smaller, I mean... I couldn't, I couldn't avoid the kind of horrible, toxic jockiness that went on at my school because like, I didn't really, what it was school too did small. you go to? I went to Severn in Severna Park, Maryland. Okay. Um, and there was so much about that experience that I kind of, I couldn't avoid the crappiness of it because the school was so small that there weren't any sort of cliques to kind of find respite <laughs> from the, from the main culture, which was jockey. Yeah, weirdly enough, it was lacrosse. Uh, um, that was the main. Was it sport. an all-girls school? Oh no, oh. no, no. Um, it was co-ed, and um, boys and girls were into lacrosse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and if lacrosse you, is kind of like a, a waspy. It really is, and I had honestly never heard of it until we moved there. And it's like there's this pocket of lacrosse in Maryland, and then there's a pocket of it in the Midwest, and I think maybe in Ohio, and like that's it. There's Colorado a, has. I remember oh, really? the, the first time I ever even heard of lacrosse was when I moved to Colorado. Or, I mean, not heard of it, but actually knew people who played. Yeah. It was a big deal. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the thing that's interesting about it to me is that the girls don't wear protective gear, so you can't, like, you can't do any aggressive moves towards them. But the boys wear these huge helmets, and they wear shoulder pads, and the idea is to beat the shit out of them with your lacrosse sticks. <laughs> um, so, like, for girls, it's kind of a polite sport, and for boys, it's like, yeah like barbarians <laughs> yeah and and to be fair um the jock culture was not the only one at severn um but there was a lot of crappy stuff that went on around the jock culture at severn like what just people just ridiculing people and... yeah there was a girl um because the... this is like this is is this fodder for your novella Oh, no. This has nothing to do with my novella, unfortunately. Nothing at all? No. Because it, it's kind of school-based? and It is, but that school is kind of a kind of an ideal version of a girl's boarding school oh, okay. um, that I invented. This has nothing to do with Severn. Um, it's things like, it was a very drunk culture, yeah. um, and the school administration pretended it wasn't. Um, there was we a, need to get kids off of alcohol and cigarettes and on to psychedelics. Oh, I mean, psychedelics. If they're, they're going to, and, and marijuana, if they're going to use something, and ideally they don't use anything um, because like they're able to handle their, you know, existential <laughs> pain um, elegantly. I'm just, I'm talking about the, the way that things are sort of structured. It's out of, it's out of whack. I feel like. I agree. I think it's better in Europe where, you know, there's not a sort of scarcity mindset around alcohol when you're a kid. Right. Um, because we have that in America, I think it's a huge problem. Um, I don't know. People just fuck, you know, alcohol. It's fine to have like a drink or two, but like, I, you know, getting shit faced. I, and I speak as somebody who grew up in this culture, like Indiana. It's like, yeah, we'll get like a case of beer and some cigarettes and 
Just fucking morons. Yeah, yeah. But what else are you going to do? do? Do some mushrooms. Well. And realize that it's all a construct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably freak yourself out. I mean, look, I'm not advocating that children should be... <laughs> I'm just saying that we're like here a, with Brad Listy, who yeah. believes that children should be fed psychedelic <laughs> mushrooms. No, I just feel like uh, it's like the good, like if you're even going to call them drugs, I feel like the good ones, which need to be taken responsibly and can cause harm if taken irresponsibly. And, you know, you got to know what you're doing. But like the good ones have been I- illegalized and sort of shunted to the side. And the bad ones, the ones that really do a lot of like uh, societal damage have been elevated, uh, and consumerized. Hmm. Right. And it's like in every gas station and I'm accustomed to this because my, uh, my parents aren't big drinkers, but my dad was a, is a lifelong smoker. And, um, I grew up thinking that all illegal drugs are wrong, that they are morally wrong. Yeah. So now living in a state where, um, cannabis is legal is so uncomfortable for me because I'm, I'm experimenting a little bit with doing cannabis here and there. And I'm, I feel like someone's going to find me (laughs) and they're going to know. I'm sort of that way too. I'm from the just say no generation. Oh, okay. You know? So like, I think until I was like, it was terrifying because I had been so indoctrinated. And then also my parents were very much like, do not do drugs. Yes. Mine too. Do not do drugs. And then like you get to, and the thing about it, I always say like that whole paradigm is the reason why I went out and experimented because once you like smoke a joint and realize like the world didn't come crashing down on you and that you just like laughed and ate cereal that you're like, well, then I've been lied to. I'm going to try everything. (laughs) Nobody gave me good information. That's what South Park says. Yeah. You need better information. That's what I think. I'm going to try to do that with my kids. Like just tell them what's what and let them make, I mean, they're going to have to make their own choices eventually. But I, I just think that to paint with a broad brush, and to lump all drugs like, you know, meth, heroin, weed, beer. Yeah. It's just not it's, you know, cocaine. Like, what are we doing? Well, but you know that we as Americans have a real hard time with nuance. I mean, that's, I think, our weakest point as a society with a brain is the ability to break things down into different, you know, in, in, to not generalize. Right. We need better schools. Yes. Teach nuance. Yes. Um, More private schools now. No. No. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's interesting to watch marijuana uh, or cannabis become uh, mainstreamed, you know? Can I tell you a funny story about this? Yeah. So there's a a dispensary fairly near my house. And I think six months after it became actually legal here, um, not not medically legal, but like really legal, um, I decided to go in there and, and... buy some cannabis products and <laughs> exercise your right. Like I screwed up all of my courage and, um, parked in the parking lot. My heart's pounding. Have you ever done any, uh, no, no, never. So this is your first this time is, ever getting like high. Yeah. I mean, yes. A, a friend sort of gave me her pen and I tried a few, uh-huh. you know, but it was like, not why, what was the impetus? Was it like, maybe this will help with anxiety or maybe this will help you sleep or was it anything? actually, it was migraines. migraines. Uh, my hope was that it would help with my migraines, but also I was just curious about it. Um, and, um, it did not end up helping with the migraines, but it does help with cramps. So that's good. You know, what does help with migraines What? or maybe it's cluster headaches Are cluster headaches, migraines, or is it a type of it's migraine? different? It's different. 
But uh, microdosing uh, psilocybin is supposed I've heard to help, that. help yeah. with uh, cluster headaches. Um, okay, so I'm walking. I'm walking up to the dispensary, and um, I walked up to the door. I pulled on the door. It didn't open, so I just turned and left. <laughs> and I didn't know until later that you have to pull on the door, and then they buzz you in. So it wasn't closed, but it was like that was the absolute amount of courage that I had was to pull on the door, and that was all I had in me. That was <laughs> and it. I had to leave because there is still like an element of like shadiness to go to a dispensary. There's always like a, like a stone security guard yes like standing there he's like armed and just baked <laughs> <laughs> yes and uh and then you have to like go give your driver's license and wait to get buzzed and through they have and... that really thick window like yeah. like they do at the the shadiest gas stations in the world have those thick windows and that's what this it's yeah i've gotten better i'm able to go back now and like not yeah, by the way is this necessary all this shit i mean my assumption is that it, because it's been a cash-only business for so long, they're worried about getting robbed. Oh, that's what it is. That's my thought. That, no, that's exactly right. Because I was going to say, like, you, like liquor stores, you don't just you just walk in. Yeah, um, but it's not. It's because the federal government won't let them do banking, so they got to yeah. operate in cash. So I mean, I think it'll get better, um, but at the moment, it's still pretty, pretty secure. God, yeah. So yeah, it's just a funny scene, like. Remember one time I was like in the waiting room because you have to kind of like wait your turn. Yeah, you do. I, you don't anymore at this dispensary. It's like gradually they're sort of stripping away the one by one sort of they don't buzz you in anymore. And then they don't have a separate room where they take your driver's license anymore. And then they don't, you know, one by one, those things are going away, but it's gradual. Let's hope. I remember just sitting in that, like I was like on some like, in, like ratty leather couch. It's like torn and duct taped and I'm sitting there waiting in the waiting room and there's like people all around most everybody just looks just cooked. And then this guy walks in like this muscly, like LA dude, like tatted up in his tank top. And he's like holding a pit bull under his arm, what? like a, like a, you know, like a sack of potatoes and the pit bulls, like not neutered. So he's like standing in front of me and I'm like sitting there. I'm like, dude, and like, this pit bulls, like, <laughs> like that sort of stuff. Oh my gosh. Memories. Oh. Um, so tell me about your book. Your book is a novella and it is based on or inspired by, Florence and the Machine. Correct. Okay. Um, the 12 chapters, they're very, very short, so it's stupid to call them chapters, but that's they're divisions in the book. Um, kind of song for song match the 12 songs on Ceremonials, the album from 2011. Okay. Um, so you heard, this, you heard this album and you were like, I see a book in this. Yeah. Instantly. That's, it, that's pretty much what happened. I heard it. The more I listened to it, the more I thought, there's a story in here that Florence is sort of telling, but not actually telling, and I want to tell it. And that's not to say that her vision for the album, that I somehow psychically intuited what she meant, because that's not true at all. But it is to say that the story that I heard in the album is the one that I decided to write. And how, I I haven't listened to the album recently, so it's like, how explicit in the lyrics is this narrative? To me, it's pretty explicit. Um, so the the opening song um, has Florence says, uh, "I heard your voice as clear as day, and you told me I should concentrate." And so, in the first chapter, "concentrate" is repeated like a refrain: "concentrate, concentrate." And then, um, "the grass was so green against my new clothes, and I did cartwheels in your honor." And so, like, she has a new dress, and she's on the grass you know, cartwheeling. Um, and that's my main character. So I tried to kind of use 
the stories in the lyrics and then to interpret them as I saw fit. Um, and that meant that I used a lot of words that appear in the songs, but of course, not more than five at a time, because then I would infringe on copyright. <laughs> oh, really? Is that how that works? Yeah. You can use five? I think it's up to five. Up to five. It might be up to four, and then five and more is bad, but okay. yeah. Does she know about this? I don't think so. Um, bef- after I had the book accepted, I wrote to her people, and I wrote to as many of them as I could, like her British agent and her American agent, her American publicist, and like all of the people that I could find contact information for. I wrote them and I said, hi, this book exists. It's coming out next year. I don't want to infringe on her work. I really don't want to get sued. Um, You don't have to endorse me, but I want you to be aware that this is happening. Please don't sue me. Um, And they wrote back to me at first and then stopped. What did they say? They said, can we see a copy of the book? And I said, sure. So I sent them a PDF. And so I like I, ch- I checked in a couple of times and they said, hi, yes, we've gotten your book. Nothing for now. And then they just stopped answering me. You know, what's you know, what's nerve wracking about this is that you're thinking, well, they just probably didn't give a shit. They read a few pages and were like, oh, this this is fine. This is just a book. Florence is cool with it. And by the way, she should be. I think so. I mean, for God's sake, it's nothing but flattering that your album uh, inspired a book. But um, there's a part of me when I think about like the people, not Florence, but the people that are like, well, on the off chance that this book becomes a massive bestseller, let's not go on the record one way or the other. That was my concern as well. Um, the last email I sent was, I am interpreting your lack of response as you don't want to endorse and you don't want to hamper me from publishing this. If you write back to me and tell me different, great. Otherwise, I will assume that I did my due diligence and you're not going to sue me. Like, I was very explicit in this last email. Like, if you don't write me back, I'm going to assume this is okay. So I have that paper trail. There you go. But I agree. It's the people. Um, if If you've ever tried to get legal clearance for music... It is impossible. No, it's a pain in the ass. And I know that it's not about the musicians. I know it's not. It's about the publishing companies and the way that they control access to their IP. Um, but it's deeply frustrating. Yeah, it's tedious. You got to get lawyers, and it's expensive. Oh yeah, we tried to. Um, originally, the book had a couple of lines from Irving Berlin, and Irving Berlin, unlike most. Um, songwriters, instead of using a big publishing company, there's like one company that handles only Irving Berlin lyrics. So you have to talk to them if you want his stuff. And um, it ended up being like, if we were going to print 100 copies or less, it was going to be $200 to use these lyrics. But if it was 200 copies or more, then it was going to be like thousands. Interesting. And we were like, no, <laughs> we're not going to pay that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really interesting, the business decisions that companies make around IP in the age that we live in, like the movie studios, for example, when YouTube came online and people started cutting up movies and making their little homages or funny videos, like, you know, at first I think there was a lot of pushback and maybe there still is, but I think a lot of movie studios have been like, no, these are just commercials for our products that people are making for free. Yeah. I think some, I mean, some are tougher than others. Like the Simpsons, I know, if it's like two and three second videos, they leave it. But if it's longer, if it's a whole scene, then they'll make you take it down. Oh, really? Um, which okay. I think is bullshit, but there we are. I mean, copyright is bullshit generally. This is not how the law was intended to be taken. Well, and I think when it comes to art, um, so much is theft. Like it, not one for one. Everything's a remix. Everything's a remix. I mean, I wouldn't give a shit if somebody like clipped a paragraph out of my novel and like, pasted it i'd be like honored like oh cool you made something from it yeah 
Who are these people who are like offended? I don't know. This was mine. I don't I, bull, you know, get a grip. I mean, George Lucas, I guess. I don't know. I don't know who these people are. I mean, look, look, if if you're like if you're taking somebody else's work like like full stop, or, you know, or like a huge chunk of it and then making a ton of money from it, I get it. Um, but I'm talking more about like the way in which art is made consciously or unconsciously. Like this has been going on forever. People just take bits and pieces from the artists who inspire them and reconstitute them. I think David Shields is a really good example of this and how when reality hunger came out, everyone was upset because he didn't credit the quotes that he used. But to me, it's that he was creating a new work of art from these. He was collaging. Yeah. And that's to me, you it removes something from the art to have to continually credit. Exactly. Hey, you know, and, and like collage in visual art doesn't make people rend garments. Right. Why can't I, there be literary collage? No idea. And like, uh, you know, it's not like he took, cause I love reality hunger. That book, I think like, you know, uh, you don't have to agree with everything in it, but it's just so stimulating and it's an exciting book in a lot of ways. And like sort of opened up possibilities for me, um, creatively to think of it that way. You yeah. Know? Stimulating is a really good word for him. He's, he's one of my favorite writers. So makes you think Yeah. and challenges. And like, also like I've said this to him when he's been in here is, uh, there is a candor <laughs> to David Shields on the page that I think is unusual. Absolutely. You're like, damn dude, you're telling me everything, everything. There's, and, and like everything about the things that nobody really wants to talk about. It's not like he's telling me everything like full stop, but he's just going there mm-hmm. and he has this fearlessness and like lack of shame that I envy. The thing I love about it is how wrapped up he is like, you can tell, even though he's telling you everything, he has enormous anxiety about telling you everything, but he has like this sense that if he doesn't tell you everything, it's going to be way worse. Yeah. And oh, <laughs> I freaking love him. Yeah. So anyway, I think collage is fine. I mean, you know, there have to be some parameters, but I think uh, anybody who gets worked up about it is, is being silly. Yeah. So, so that's my hope is, is that Florence will see it as a compliment and that her people will see it as way too small potatoes to get upset about. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, my, my grand vision is for her to, um, she has a book. adopt you. <laughs> yeah, no, she has a, she has a book club between two books. And so my hope is that they'll want it as a selection for the book club. Um, because that seems like it would be a natural fit. Uh, and you know, the beyond my wildest dreams thing is like, she'll sell it at concerts, which of course that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. No, that's... I know how the mind goes though, when it comes to this stuff yeah. and then she'll bring me out and I'll get to read an excerpt. <laughs> I would never want to do that. Yeah. But yes, yeah. The wildest dreams thing. There'll is... be a live horse on stage with you. Yes. You'll ride out, be handed a microphone. It'll be a Frisian too. Florence, if you're listening, make this make this dream come true. <laughs> By the way, she has the resources. She can get a horse for a couple hours. Yeah. I think it should involve a horse. Have you seen that picture of Florence on a horse? No. It was in vogue some years ago and it's like this it's a it's a horse with a great big beautiful mane and she's got a sword and it's rearing and it's like it's Photoshop. it's a big hashtag goals. Is it real? Yeah, did she really did it. I mean, I believe she did. Her her legs look like she's hanging on. Okay, um, but that's like a big. Oh, it's so beautiful. She's pretty awesome. I think so. Yeah, I like her. What's that? I mean, I I think about uh, I never know the names of songs, but I like that band. My wife was really into it, so that's why I, I you know have exposure to it. She might like my book. She might. I'll have to get it to her. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about, um, just so people listening have some context, like 
your your novella is about a relationship uh between two young ladies mm -hmm. across the uh, chasm of uh life and death correct so gothic like i've seen it referred to as like a gothic novella a gothic love story yeah uh, um, like how did this all come to be like in your imagination do you have like a gothic romance when you're in high school? I mean, I, I know it's like the easiest question ever, but this is where my mind goes. No, it's not based on life in any way, except that the relationship that they have with each other is obsessive. And I fully understand obsessive relationships, especially at that age. Yeah. Um, when you're a teenager, I think is, is when you're ripest to be obsessive as opposed to actually seeing the person as a person, you just see the person as an object. Um, I am, as my friend Dolly puts it, an unsuccessful bisexual. Most of my relationships have been heterosexual with men. Um, so it was really fun to kind of do the opposite thing in the book where most of Amelia's relationships are with women. And then she has this one relationship with a man. Um, so no, not based on life. What was the other part of your question? I don't know. <laughs> I think it was, was based on oh, life. Gothic, gothic. Yeah. Gothic. So, um, I've always really loved the Gothic and never thought that I could write it. So when people started calling this a Gothic novella, I was really excited. Oh, so you didn't like stamp it that way? No, just... I wasn't. I wasn't thinking about the Gothic tradition. I was thinking about ghost stories. Did you ever have a goth phase? No. No. Okay. Me neither. Um, but it's never too late. I mean, I, <laughs> I did have um, a vinyl floor length matrix coat when I was in high school. What's a matrix coat? Like, like the coats in the matrix. Oh, the way the they... oh okay. I was thinking like, was that a brand? No, or... no, no. Like the, <laughs> like the long intimidating coats they wear in the yeah. matrix. Um, so no, no goth face, no goth face yet. Um, but you're into horses. I'm into horses. And also my parents are both Southern. So I Where kind are they of, um, uh, my father is from Kentucky and my mother is from North Carolina. Okay. Um, and I grew up kind of in that family way, like the, you know, I didn't grow up 100% in the South, but they're both very strongly influenced me with the South. Did you grow up religious? No. Not at all? Not at all. Interesting. South usually comes with religion. Yeah, but neither of them was interested. Um, my dad, like, I think was a... <laughs> he told me a funny story once that he um, used to go to Sunday school and ask annoying questions and, you know, ask all these questions about all the inconsistencies that they were teaching him about the Bible until eventually they just asked him not to come back anymore. Right. Um, and You're making this a little bit hard on this. <laughs> my mom was Episcopalian, but I don't think very attached to it. So I, I'm fond of Episcopalian. Yeah. -ism. Yeah. As an ism. I have a friend. I went to high school with a guy who became an Episcopalian priest and he calls it Catholicism light. Yeah. That's why, because I grew up Catholic and then oh. I, my, my daughter went to an Episcopal school and uh, I would get, I went to chapel, I think they call it, a couple times. I was like, oh, this, this is, is nice. fine. Yeah, they're not like scaring anybody. Gay people can be in there. Women mm -hmm. can be priests. Like, there's a lot of the corrections that I, um, you know, sort of feel like the Catholic Church is long overdue in making. Oh yeah, just like tolerance and you know, and I don't know. This is also um, a service that was like recognizing that a huge number of students in the school were like Jewish or atheist. Oh or, yeah. So they had to kind of be wide open. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't think religion will survive unless it acts that way. Yeah. I don't need, I mean, I don't know what it's going to happen, but I also feel like I've had, uh, this argument before where I feel like the infrastructure that's already there needs to be capitalized on. 
Like they already have the facilities and the communities. It's the dogma. That's the problem. But like a community is good. Getting yeah. people together is good. Helping people is good. Befriending people is good. Like having some connectivity in your community is good. But like, let's just like remove like the hellfire and damnation and the judging and the intolerance and the sexual craziness. And, yeah. That's, you know, that's so interesting. The it's people, a tall order. <laughs> the people I know in, I'm an old millennial and the people I know in my generation who are churchy are there for the community. Like they're way less interested in the spiritual aspect of it than they are in mm -hmm. the sense of community. And I didn't get that that was kind of the point of church for many, 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 many decades. So once I got that, it kind of clicked into place and I agree with you. It's that's, that's all there. We should capitalize on it. But right. Yeah. You know, so we'll see what happens, but I feel like that's, you know, the social fabric of the South in particular, um, I mean, maybe it's changing, maybe, or maybe I'm just thinking of these small towns where my parents, because my parents are Southern too. Oh. Um, where are they from? Louisiana. Oh. But it's like so much of the social fabric is tied up in the church. So my mom says that the social fabric of the South really changed when air conditioning came in because people don't sit on their porches anymore. Mm. And that once you're not sitting on your porch, you're, once you're stuck inside your house with the air conditioning, you don't interact with your neighbors anymore. Well, once climate change gets bad enough <laughs> and we can no longer use air conditioning anymore, then well, they might move back out to their Once porches. we all get in the dome, then we'll, <laughs> we won't be able to avoid each other. Yeah. It's going to be... I mean, there's play... I want to say the town that my dad grew up in uh, is going to be gone in like 100 years. Oh, really? Yeah. It's like one of those like deep... You know, it's like way south Louisiana down yeah. in the bayou kind of places and... That's rough. Like, but it's just crazy to think about. It is. I have such a hard time grasping the level of the trouble that we're in. Yeah. I think most people do until it's like, until the water's creeping up and then suddenly it's like, help, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, what yeah. are we going to do something? And yeah. I, I mean, previously I kind of had this sense of if humans are extinguished from the planet, the planet will go on. So like to say the world is ending is actually incorrect because the world's not ending. The human yeah. world may be ending. I yeah, know George Carlin has a great bit about this. Oh, really? Yeah. He's like, the planet is fine. Yeah. He's like, we're fucked. Yes. Like, and so I kind of had that in my mind as a possibility, if not a likelihood. But then when that guardian thing came out last year where humans may be extinct within the next hundred years, it felt a lot realer. And I started to wonder you know, should I have an existential crisis about this or should I just kind of keep living my life and hope for the best? Right. Um, I decided on the second one. I mean, a little bit of both maybe. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've funny, like funnily enough, like recently I've changed my tune on Mars. I've gone on the record many times on this show being like, fuck Mars. Why are we going to Mars? Mars is, doesn't even have an atmosphere. Who wants to go to Mars? I don't know. Now I'm trying to think of if I've talked about this on the show. Did you read that book about Laika? Is that where this came from? No. Because no. there's you mean this, Laika the Russian dog? Yeah, Laika the Russian dog. There was a, there's this, it's a beautiful book. And this guy, he, he wrote a basic biography of Laika. Right. And then the very last chapter of the book is this screed about how humans must go to Mars. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me, buddy? Like, what? <laughs> Laika was the first creature in space, right? No, not the first creature in space. Oh, okay. Um, first the, to orbit the or first something? animal to orbit the earth. Okay. Yeah. And it died up there. Yeah. They just like sent it up. They didn't have any plan to get it back. No, they didn't have any plan to get her back. And, um, yeah, no, this, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. I reviewed it for brevity and, um, it broke my heart to read it. Yeah. Um, 
but she was so brave. She <laughs> Poor was. like. Yeah, they trained her. They had to like get her yeah. acclimated to noises. And, and she was a stray. They found her on the streets of Moscow, and they had to get. I mean, the the main thing was they had to have a small dog. Um, but they also had to have a dog who was patient and she would sit still for, I think, 18 hours at a time. Oh my God. And that's why they picked her. But anyway, the Mars thing. So you're into Mars then. No, I was anti-Mars in the most (laughs) strident possible way until recently. Um, because the reason I think we should be making efforts to get ourselves interplanetary is that it shows us, I read something, um, I think it was an essay by Tim Kreider. Oh, I love him. Yeah. I love him. Yeah. And he's like, we need to be planning for the future. He's like, if we at least are making plans to go to Mars, it shows that we haven't given up. And I, that sort of resonated with me. He's like, it's like, I think he compared it to like, you know, you've got like a cancer diagnosis, but you're making plans to go to Bali next year. Yeah. It's like sort of like that. You're not just like packing it in as a species. Like we used to be like, you know, in the days of John F. Kennedy, like we're going to go to the moon. Like we had some like, um, can do spirit and a sense of like great possibility. That's so, a, that's a very good point. I think to me, the problem with it is that we're offloading our problems onto another planet instead of fixing this one. Yeah. Like we're like, we're going to colonize Mars so that we don't have to live on this planet that we've made toxic for our survival. Like right. that's not cool. <laughs> we have a lot of inward work we need to do <laughs> inward exploration we need therapy. Really? We do. We need horses and we need, <laughs> psychedelic uh, experiences <laughs> <laughs> preferably on a horse yes. at a full gallop Ooh, no yes <laughs> what do you think a ho- I, I, maybe you would tune in to the horse you and the horse would have a mind meld mm. no not really for me but- i i have kind of i have kind of a difficult obsessive relationship with my own brain so the idea that psychedelics stay in there forever it makes me really uncomfortable right What do you mean you have a difficult, obsessive relationship with your brain? My therapist asked me what I would be without my brain. And I couldn't answer her because to me, my whole identity is wrapped up in my intellect and I have no idea how to untangle that. Yeah. Identity is weird. Yes. We think we're our thoughts. I mean, yeah, I, I think I've been able to distinguish me from the worst me, the me that's always beating me up. But the me without my intelligence, without my brain is like, well, th- that's moo. That's non-existent. So wait, what, that's moo. Yeah. It's a Buddhist word. Meaning. Yeah. That's the, the koan. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Are you into that stuff? No, that's kind of the only thing I know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. I was like, wow, she's an expert. <laughs> no. She solved the koan no, of I'm moo. a dilettante like my father. I know a whole, I know a little about a whole lot. I th- I'm kind of that way too. <laughs> I can kind of like skim the surface on a lot of things, but who's got time to go? I mean, you only have time to go deep on mm-hmm. a few things, if that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why my mom has a PhD and I don't Yeah, because she's like the Plus, deep Plus like the digital, you know, universe that we live in, it is designed for skimming, like getting like True. all this information rapid fired into our brains and, you know, to actually sit down and explore with uh, depth and uh, breath is, you know, you've got to really make the time. You know, something I think about a lot in 1890, I would have been able to memorize poems. And instead, I know the Diet Coke jingle from 1987. Yeah. Like, I used to know everybody's phone number. Oh, yeah. Me too. Everybody's. Yeah. I still know phone numbers from my friends from when I was a kid. But I couldn't tell you. I know my wife's phone number. My parents. And that's it. Wow. 
Two phone numbers. Three. Three. Well, but I think that means that knowledge, this is, this is my theory about this. It means that knowledge is changing as opposed to deteriorating. That we have all this at our fingertips means that our brains are free to do more analysis as opposed to memorizing phone numbers. That's my hope. I mean, yeah, let's hope it's a good thing. <laughs> you know, it's not all bad or not all good, but I do think sometimes, I mean, you feel the effects. I think we all feel the effects of spending a ton of time online and how it has kind of a sugar high feel. Oh yeah. It's the worst. You get off and your brain just feels frazzled versus when you read a book for like two hours. That's a good feeling. Oh yeah. Well, um, the last vacation I took, which was really a lot of years ago, actually, um, we went to Bainbridge Island, uh -huh. um, in Washington yeah. and I turned off social media completely for a week and I read Proust instead. And that was kind of wonderful and magnificent. But the, while I was there, I got, I think, three emails from Facebook reminding me that I could log into my account and view fuck things. Facebook. Like, fuck that. Yeah. It's so bad. Fuck it. Cancel it. <laughs> By the way, it's, it's, uh, it's right-wing Russian propaganda. Everybody out there, if you're still on Facebook, they're making a zombie out of you. Cancel it. Delete it. It's an evil company. I have to sell books, Brad. You, oh, that's right. <laughs> See, that's why they have us. They've got us. But I'm do. only on Twitter and I'm getting close to being like, you know what? I'm going to be the guy who just says sayonara to it all to my own detriment. Nobody will know. You're going to have to find me. Just so if you're listening, eventually if I disappear from social media, this is where you'll find me. Just find my podcast and you can get all the updates that you could, you know, that your heart could possibly desire. But I'm not going to be, I'm not going to give my brain away to these social media companies for much longer. I think that's <laughs> where I'm at. Fucking LinkedIn. Oh, I've never joined LinkedIn. Fucking, I mean, I, sometimes you have to. I've heard people creep on women on LinkedIn, which to me is the weirdest possible thing. <laughs> like, there are so many platforms for you to creep on. You have to go with, that's that's uh, pathetic. People, men will creep anywhere. Well, that's true. They'll creep anywhere. Even on hikes sometimes. But creepy. <laughs> I wasn't creepy. She has no idea. I was just trying to like... I was just trying to uh, draw a line under my animal nature. I didn't mean to make you justify it again. <laughs> oh, my God. I was having a conversation recently with uh, Joey Grantham. He interviewed me. I was, like, talking about sex drive and stuff. I feel like I've been, like, going off the reservation in conversation. <laughs> but it's a part of life. I don't know. Uh, I don't even remember the context, but I felt embarrassed about it afterwards. And I think, too, like, I worry sometimes, like, I sound like too much of an evangelist for like weed and, and uh, mushrooms or whatever. I don't think, I think in a perfect world, you don't need any of it. I don't want my kids to listen to this one day and be like, you know, dad thinks, you know, mushrooms are the secret to the universe. Like it's not that it's just like, um, yeah, I, I talked about it already. Just the, the way that I feel like the, the list of danger or dangerous substances has been like inverted for capitalist reasons. Yes. And to bring power to a few men in the 1980s. Um, well, and I've heard, you know, like if you think about weed or psychedelics and then you think about capitalism and you think about any kind of symbiosis that might exist between the two, like obviously you can make money selling it to customers who want it. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like being a good worker, oh. like what's going to make you a good worker? You know, like, well, some nicotine might help keep you away because it's a stimulant. Yeah. You know, and it might keep you like focused or whatever when you're sitting there coding or maybe, you know, back in the day, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of like Madison Avenue. It's like, well, have a couple Cocaine. of, 
have a couple of drinks at lunch or cocaine yeah. or have a couple of drinks, you know, it makes you chatty at the after hours, That's like true. social, but like weed, go smoke well, a joint at lunch. You're not going to want to go back to work. Or I have you... friends who are very like Higgs again has talked about how he's sort of grossed out by how the legalization of cannabis has turned it into a capitalist product and how, um, it, it's got it's got all these claims now. You know, there's this this product will speed you up, and this product will make you focus, and this product will make you stoned, and this product will make you enjoy TV more. And um, it's not possible. No, of course not. <laughs> uh, but you know, back in the day, you could just buy a bag, and it was fine. Right. And to me, my my view on that is, it was not fine. You were breaking the law, which you know that's too extreme in the other direction. But I kind of never thought of that angle that people who have been potheads from way back are like, this sucks. This is, this is turning something well, that I love and making it into the Super Bowl. Well, okay. I have, I have complicated thoughts on this. I want to say I talked to Jarrett Middleton on this show and we were speaking along these lines and he was like, yeah, you know, I don't, I want to smoke the plant. I don't want the edibles. I don't want something that's been processed because it has all these other chemicals in it. Right. And you don't know exactly what you're getting. When you get the plant, you know, the plant. The problem is that weed is so fucking strong. I don't want, if you get the, if you get like a bag of weed and you take like a, a one puff out of a one hitter of good, t like the basic standard good weed that you would get today, I'm very sensitive to it. Mm. I don't want to get debilitatingly stoned. I don't want to lose control of my narrative. Some people do, I guess, but I got shit to do. <laughs> I like... I like the idea of uh, modern cannabis culture finding a way to control the dosage. Mm, yeah. Because you take too much and you lose control of your narrative and you're sitting there having laughing attacks yeah. while watching, you know, the golf channel or something. It's like, <laughs> what am I fucking doing? That's true. I need to be able to function. So I like the idea of being able to like basically microdose it. And I mean, it's good for people like me who are, who are terrified of drugs generally. Um, to say, okay, take this much and this is the experience you will have. It's a hundred percent controlled. And because I, you grew up with just say no, I grew up with dare and the videos that they made us watch are petrifying. Yeah. Like <laughs> that bag of weed is going to have some PCP in it. Oh, and so yeah. you better not buy it. Even if it's from your neighbor. No, no, no. So the idea that it's all controlled and processed is a positive for me, but I fully understand how for other people, it wouldn't be that way at all. I guess so. Maybe some people, they just want the earthy experience. You yeah. Know? I mean, or they have you, a higher, they have a higher tolerance. I just have a yeah. very low tolerance. I mean, if you want to smoke it, just go buy some weed from your dispenser. Like they have it. Right. <laughs> right. Something for everyone. But you know, some people got to yell. So let's talk about death a little bit. Cause oh, your, cool. your book is gothy and death concerned and it's about, uh, two young women who are sort of communicating with each other across this, uh, Void. Yes. One of them is dead and the other is not. Yeah. So, and Coruscant? Coruscant is dead and Amelia is not. Okay. Yes. Um, what, why death? Like, why did you want to have this, uh, like what inspired you to write about characters communicating across the void? Um, two things. One is that I have always loved ghost stories and I didn't really think that I could write one of my own. So I'm really happy that I did. The other is that I realized that the best romances end with someone dying. Um, all of the very most sort of the ones that stick around in your heart and mind are impossible 
um, the notebook is like the only exception that I can think of where they end up together as opposed to one of them dying. You Romeo the, and Juliet. The Nicholas and, Sparks? Yeah. Um, I saw that movie. I didn't read the book. Yeah, no, I didn't read the book. Um, but Romeo and Juliet, they both die. In Titanic, Jack dies. You knew he was going to die. There was no way they could end up together. Um, they're all running away from me at the moment. But the When Harry met Sally, Harry dies. <laughs> so brutal. <laughs> Folks at home, that's not true. <laughs> Fed into a wood chipper. Wuthering Heights. I mean, sort of the great romances tend to end with one of them not alive anymore. Right. So I wanted to see what would happen if I started the story with one of them dead and how that would develop. Um, Because telling the story of the romance felt like it had been done. Telling the story of recovery from the one perfect romance that you thought was the greatest thing to ever happen to you seemed much more interesting. Well, it looks like you pulled it off. I mean, we'll see. People have been very positive about it. And no, the that's reviews nice. are good. Yes. Yeah, so that's far. a nice feeling. Yeah. I have to comment on your t-shirt. Okay. Um, you're wearing a t-shirt that says hell is other people. And there's like a nice looking like Robin. Is that a bird or is that a sparrow? I don't know. I don't know what kind of bird it is, but it is a sparrow sitting on some flowers and hell as other people is written in beautiful cursive. You can actually see a picture of me wearing it on my Twitter feed somewhere. Oh, Um, you had to have thought I'll I'll wear this on the other people podcast or was it a total accident? No, I thought of it. Um, mostly I thought you would probably enjoy the (laughs) t-shirt. I do. Um, I want one. uh, I feel like I should make hell as other people t-shirts, but it should be spelled other PPL. (laughs) You could. You should. That's actually a good idea. You should. I think people would like that. I mean, not like this. Like they wouldn't. It wouldn't be pretty and girly. It would be like you know, in in your font. Yeah. Yeah. Just like sans serif, black, and yellow. Black and, and yellow. yellow. Yeah. Or uh, what was it called? The T-shirt company had like it was called banana cream because it was kind of a softer yellow. <laughs> oh gosh. And then you uh, you're, you've got some tattoos. I always like, yeah. uh, or I often like to talk to guests about their tattoos because. I have like a fascination slash envy slash curiosity about uh, people and their tattoos and like how they make decisions about what to put on their bodies. Yeah. It's, it has long been a fascination for me too. Do you want the long stories or the short stories? We'll do like do some short stories about each tattoo. Okay. So this very colorful one on my right arm is a picture of Tom Servo from Mystery Science Theater 3000. Um, and it says, I'm the wind baby, which is from a sketch that he did with Gypsy. Um, if you don't want know what mystery science theater 3000 is, you have Google. Um, on the underside of my right elbow is a symbol that when you, it's, it's a series of lines in a rectangle and you can make every letter of the alphabet out of it. Um, really, really. Wow. I'm, I'm this thing is kind of like hypnotizing me. I'm looking at it. <laughs> How do you make the letter B? Oh, yeah. Weird. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. Um, This one is, it's on the inside of my right arm, and it's uh, in the language Akkadian, which is a cuneiform language. It says create. Um, This is the language that the Epic of Gilgamesh was written in. So that mattered to me. Thoughtful. Um, On my left arm. (laughs) Is that my face? No. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) This is getting weird, people. Not this week. Uh, okay. um, <coughs> excuse me. On my shoulder is a lamppost that people have interpreted many different ways. Brad, what do you think it is? I'm going to say it is the light of illumination. 
attached to a serpent's tail. That's really poetic, but wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It's deeply poetic and deeply wrong. Um, It's the story of my life. People have said, is that a New Orleans lamppost? Is that the lamppost from Los Angeles? What is that? And it's the lamppost from Narnia. Oh, Mr. Um, Tumnus. Yeah. Um, And then on the backside of my left arm is the picture of Dignity from The Simpsons. Um, when uh, they were playing Pictionary and uh, Milhouse's Wait, dad had that, to draw Dignity. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know The Simpsons that well. That's uh, not a character. That's like a drawing. No, from- it's a drawing. It's like they were playing Pictionary and he had to draw Dignity. So he drew this and his wife couldn't figure out what it was. And so he yelled, that's Dignity. Don't you know Dignity when you see it? <laughs> um, I forgot to say on the back of my um, right arm is uh, Lydia Yuknovich's signature. Oh. I got her permission before doing it. It wasn't just a creepy thing. Do you need thing. to ask permission? I think it would be the right thing to do. <laughs> I think it's creepy to get someone's signature without making sure they're okay with it. Yeah. So um, Lydia's a hero to you. Oh, yeah. And a teacher and a friend. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. You took, what, did you take her like uh, workshops or something? Yes. Um, I took... Did you tell me this before? I don't think so. Okay. Um, I took workshops from her for the first time, I think in 2015. And then in 2016 and then again like i i've been around her a lot does she know you have the tattoo she yes does. yeah she does she gave her blessing she did i'd be so flattered i i mean i would too but if you're I'm... listening out there you can use my signature as a tattoo <laughs> okay i'm gonna make a note of that um <laughs> on the underside of my left elbow is the do you recognize this no okay so it's the uh image of the sign and the signifier the, the linguistic sign from Saussure. Okay. Um, so like, that made any sense to me, but go ahead. <laughs> the signified and the signifier. And I really, it's really hard to explain this without visual aids. So listening to it on a podcast. It is, looks like an egg with a vertical line drawn through it. And then like atop the egg and below the egg are arrows pointing in opposite directions. Yeah. So the linguistic sign is this whole thing. The idea is that the signified and the signifier are attached to each other like the two sides of a piece of paper and you can't rip them apart. Of course, Derrida came along and said, yes, you can. But for me, I'm, I'm more of a structuralist. So that's why this is here. Um, and the la- this is actually the first tattoo I got. It's on the inside of my left arm and it is Sanskrit for luminous. And the joke is that the lamppost leads down to luminous. Ah. Ah. Well, so, but this is very thoughtful. Yeah. I'm glad we just got a tour. <laughs> well, now, what about the face tattoo? What's the... <laughs> that was really a drunken night. You know, I really like Winnie the Pooh. I was going to say, I was going to say, it's like Winnie the Pooh. And then, uh, who is that over there on the, on the right side? Oh, of well, that's face? Derrida. See? Oh, that is. Yeah. yeah. Derrida and Winnie the Pooh. It's a good look. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they're both very friendly. Um, uh, well, I've loved talking with you. Uh, I appreciate you driving in. Uh, it's been fascinating to learn uh, about like your love of horses and like your life out there and uh, you know, this book and, and how it was built from an album, which I think I'm trying to think if I've talked to anybody who built a work off of a, a piece of music like that. Most commonly ekphrastic works are poems after paintings. Okay. Um, I think of this as an ekphrastic work because it is writing after music, but it's really unusual if it exists. Wait, what's that word? Ekphrastic? Ekphrastic. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. That's what that means? It means you like used music to write your book? It's like Ode on a Grecian Urn is an ekphrastic poem. Oh, right. Because it's a work of art after another work of art. After another work of art. Ekphrastic. Mm-hmm. You're teaching me things here. 
Um, well, thanks so much for coming over. Congratulations on your novella and best of luck with the essay collection. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, that's Catherine Coldiron. What do you think? Her new novella is called Ceremonials. It's available from Kern Punked Press. Say it with me now. Kern Punked. Catherine Coldiron. Again, the novella is called Ceremonials. Go get your copy. You can find her on the internet at kcoldiron.com. You can sign up for her newsletter. She does a newsletter. Sign up for it at kcoldiron.com. She's on Facebook and she's on Twitter. Her handle is at Frigida. At F E R R I F R I G I D A. <laughs> Catherine Coldiron, ceremonials, okay? Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top of the interview. Thanks to uh, the people at Blinkist for sponsoring the program today. If you want to write to me, if you have uh, something you want to say to me, you can either tweet to Joseph Grantham, my new social media director, or you can email me. My, my uh, email address is letters at otherppl.com. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah, this uh, podcast has its own official app. The Other People with Brad Listy app is free. It's a free app. Everything's free. All episodes of this show are free. Did you know that? More than 600 and counting. I make the entire archive available for free. I don't pay all that shit. I give it away. This is a listener-supported program. If you like this program, if you find it nourishing, you can support this program at uh, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Tip your server. I feel like I talk about certain things too much. I need to stop talking about how I think marijuana and mushrooms are the, the quote-unquote good drugs. Like, we get it, okay? It's one of the risks you run when you do a podcast on a regular basis is that you inevitably repeat yourself because you are who you are. You have your little weird, you know, obsessions and peccadilloes. Got to try to discipline myself, somehow find a way to uh, edit, self-edit. Next week on the program, Garth Greenwell. You ready for that? Take some mushrooms and squeegee your third fucking eye. Oh my God, there is only this moment.